You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to this week's podcast, the story of Lieber Crane Factory in Killarney. This is truly a fascinating story that had far-reaching consequences economically and socially for a small town in the southwest of Ireland. In 1949, Hans Lieber invented the tower crane, and 10 years later, in 1958, he commissioned his first factory outside of Germany, and this was to gain a foothold in the British and North American market and the company decided on a site in the southwest of Ireland, in a place called Killarney, to build a production site in order to manufacture tower cranes, followed by container cranes, shipyard cranes, special cranes. And to find out more in this podcast, you will hear why Lieber decided on Ireland. who told me the reason that he wanted to go to Ireland was that it didn't suffer from English Cronkite. And why in the southwest of Ireland? The next thing was uh, Lieper, the German factory, came to Killarney. They ambushed him in the morning and took him to the lakeside where the hotel is. And they offered him that area because they thought a factory needs water to build the factory there. Hans Lieber wasn't happy at the beginning of the manufacturing of container cranes. The old man, as we say, Hans Lieber, wasn't totally amused uh, at what say she passed the factory going to the Hotel Europe and we met in the evening for dinner and he said to What's that they're standing in the in the yard? I said, oh, that's only a gantry. He said, that's a container crane. And then the logistics of shipping these large cranes from the factory in Killarney to Phoenix Pier for overseas transport. I became transport manager. So it was my job to ship the cranes from here to Australia or wherever. Okay. And I had to bring them to Phoenix. And they had to load them on the ships of Phoenix. So let's get started. Brian O'Kelly was an official appointed by the Irish government to reside in Germany in the 1950s in order to represent the commercial interests of the country and to promote Ireland as a manufacturing destination. We were nine years in Germany and that was brilliant because um, we, we could... Um, get a lot done 
Um, uh, what was your brief in, in... I was the liaison man there. We had ambassadors coming and going, and I was the one who had to hang on when they were finished and carry on to the next man. So I spent nine years there altogether in Germany. Now, half of that was on propaganda. Uh, the first half of it I spent giving lectures. I was sh showing you. So, oh. so I'm traveling the country in my car, yes. you know, lecturing at schools. And I liked that very much. So, well, I'm telling them the story, you know, of what we can do in Ireland, mm. that sort of thing. So it would have influenced quite a few. And eventually then, um, the IDA got going. And they were brilliant, um, collecting industries. And I used to go around with the IDA man uh, and sort of driving places. And we do the thing together. I've been at lunch with Herr Liebherr, for oh, instance. Oh, yeah. Yes. Hans Liebherr, who told me the reason that he wants to go to Ireland was that it didn't suffer from English Krankheit. Yet, do you know what that is? English sickness. Uh, can you elaborate on that? The people in Ireland, in the east of the country, yeah. suffer from English sickness. They're all members of English unions. They're all looking for more money. They're all looking for less work. You know, and this is what they called in Germany at the time the English sickness. Okay, and did he see Kerry, uh, uh, west of Ireland? Is That's why he went there. Is it? Yeah, we, we brought him down to, to Killarney. And <laughs> he was entranced with the place. Yeah. He thought Killarney was wonderful and it had this enormous hinterland with no industry. So he'd ha he's got the complete um, control over the, or he did have until the English Union got in and started putting the strike through, which has lasted, happened some many years later. That was the beginning of the strikes. But I think they've got over it again now. But they had a fight to maintain their independence over the unions. Oh, it's fascinating. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 strategically, yeah. it was a good. And he had these big twisty roads, and he had his huge lorries. Yes, I know what I was going to say. Um, he took some of our workers from the department who had been working with us. They they left and joined his firm, and one of them became the export manager, and. Uh, of, or the pre responsible anyway for the marketing of the cranes um, they started off they came to Ireland to m make building cranes because this guy um, Lieber had spent his time as a prisoner of war sitting in his cell uh, designing building cranes you know that you see all over the city now. So, so um, that's what he was going to build in Ireland, and he did. 
so who financed his his uh, industry? He did. He started off with one other guy, and they they started building cranes in garages in the lane, and they worked up from that. So and it's still not only that, but they are the exclusive builders of harbour cranes. Yes, all the harbour cranes in the world in the West are built by Liebherr. Yeah, you you had a great um, insight to the way things were happening at the time. Well, maybe I did, yeah. Klaus Nolke and his wife Crystal arrived in Killarney in 1968. He had been working in Germany managing a crane factory for Lieber, and they both recall here events leading up to the arrival of Hans Lieber in 1958 to Killarney and his decision to build a factory there and not in Mallow, which had been recommended to him first. In the very beginning when Lipa started, I think there was a very moderate and small involvement by IDA. Uh, and I don't even know what, what it was called at the time, but there was some involvement, and uh, but the, the whole development was really done by by Hans Lieber, uh, that he said, okay, uh, he wanted to go into the English-speaking world. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he uh, looked into uh, England and uh, and Wales and Scotland and north, northern part of Ireland and northern Ireland. And then he heard that there is a wonderful area in the south. So he came... Uh, uh, flew into Dublin and uh, he was then taken down to uh, uh, southern part of Ireland and uh, to Mallow and in Mallow uh, wasn't really the right hotel so he decided or he was told that there's a nice hotel nice hotel nice hotel in Great Southern Hotel yeah. in Killarney that's where he stayed, and then some local uh, biscuits uh, uh, grabbed him and showed him around, and, and within a few days or weeks, uh, you know, the decision was made that he would start in Kalani. Oh, I see, and, 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 and so that's how it happened. Tells yes, the story that yeah. his dad got wind of that there is an industrialist from Germany looking for land to build a factory brought down here to sleep in Kilani in the Great Southern. And he was to be taken, Mr. Lieber was to be taken the next day to Malo to be introduced to the countryside and what have you. And old Mackie O'Shea decided before this man is going back to Malo, he has seen Kilani. And that's what they did. They, they ambushed him in the morning and took him to the lakeside where the hotel is and they offered him that area because they thought a factory needs water to build the factory there. And Mr. Lieber comes from an area which is as beautiful, nearly as beautiful as Kilani, and all his factories are in major beauty spots. But he would never, he said, he said, if you want to sell this land, I might be interested, but we would never put a factory here. You'd have to show me something. This is just unthinkable in this beautiful spot to put a factory. And while he was there, he decided to build a hotel, which is today called Hotel Europe. 
that's where he when when he was uh, offered that he could have that land that's where he decided to i think initially there was talk about a, a guest house but mr leeper's idea of a guest house you put in enough foundation that you could do anything with it and that's what he did yeah yeah and and of course uh, a lot of other places then he bought over as well um, well he was offered yes. you know he was offered yeah. the people were in yeah. anybody who was interested then to uh, have to sell something and needing a buyer uh, money was i'm sure not very plentiful but he had the resources and he saw what he could do and that's what he did i think all his life Fenton Ford, transport manager in the factory, recalls the reasons why the hotel was built. And he also recalls here that Hans Lieber bought some historical buildings in the area. The story goes with the hotel that Lieber would come over with his business people to visit here. And at that time, the only decent hotel in Killarney was the Great Southern Hotel. And during the summer, the place would be full of tourists, so he decided he'd build a guest house. And the guest house turned out to be Hotel Europe <laughs> on the edge of the lake. Fantastic, yeah. And that was the beginning of that was also the beginning of the modern tourist era in yeah. Killarney. Then he Hotel. bought the Dunlow Castle and he bought he bought the Ardnishie out near Cara Lake. Klaus Nolke held one of the top positions in the company as a technical director. Uh, I came in August of 1968 and initially as the technical director within the Lieber company here in Ireland there, is, uh, there was at the time a position of managing director which however later on uh, was never uh, reinstated and it was a uh, uh, management structure of three directors and later on at some stage four directors. Uh, however, um, there I came as technical director and um, later on became commercial director and later on again technical director <laughs> for production. And your relationship then with Lieber, uh, did, did, did you... Did you meet? Uh, di how did you get on with him, and, and how how would you describe him? With Mr. Lieber, oh, uh, you know, first of all, one must say, and that I had experience already in southern Germany, uh, that uh, I'm from the north, and uh, and I think, as in most countries, there's a difference between the north and the south, whether good, bad, or indifferent, but there is a difference of the people. Yeah. And um, so, uh, and uh, Mr. Lieber is most certainly uh, uh, Swabian, or was Swabian. Uh, and uh, I came from the north, and some people say I'm very stubborn in certain cases and very direct. And uh, so there were a few hiccups, all right, you know. And, uh, but. Uh, Overall, I would say uh, I had the, always had the very highest uh, respect for Mr. Lieber for what he did. Uh, and it was a very personal relationship with him.
the whole structure of the company uh, under, uh, if you like, a German regime for the first time here in, in this part of Kerry. Uh, how, did you, how did you see that work? You know, we had a we had a real uh, fixed structure at the time. Uh, we had a you know Paul Werner was the uh, managing director who had been there for eight years already, nine years, and early on uh, at the start of the company as well. And uh, Hugo Marshall was the uh, financial man uh, who. Uh, looked after all financial aspects uh, uh, whereas I had to look after the production and after the design and after the servicing. Brenton Griffin joined the crane factory when it first opened in Killarney in 1958. The next thing was uh, Leeper, the German factory, came to Killarney and myself and a younger brother uh, we came over one day and we met a man called Mr. Heinz Schiller and we taught him our story that we were looking for jobs and he said, what can you do? So we said, we were both working in garages and he said to me, do you know anything about gearboxes? I says, yeah, I can rebuild tractor gearboxes I know all about gearboxes, second nature to me so he said, start, he said it was quite easy, remember the, the day I started with the day after, after Orange Men's Day 1959, in other words, the 13th of July. So uh, I will be forever grateful to Heinz Schiller for giving us that start, because it gave me a whole new life. Brandon describes here the German foreman that he worked under. That, that factory in the start, it was... Uh, there was, I suppose, there was 60 Germans there. And when I entered, it was just half. It started, the building started in 58. And when we joined, it was three quarters finished. And uh, it was, the Germans were something else. There was, the general foreman was a man, everyone only knew his surname. He was Ammon, Ammon, A-M-A-N-N, Ammon, was a, he was in his. He was the general foreman, and he had been through two world wars. He was in his seventies. The man didn't have one word of English, not one word, and he was a severe boss. Despite being a tough, hard man, he was still a good foreman. He was good to the men in his own way. Hmm. If if he noticed. If he was putting down, we'll say, a big concrete floor and he was aiming for a six o'clock stop and at five he spotted, we won't be finished. He would go out and he'd bring in a big decent box of sandwiches and a couple of dozen beer and he'd say, stop, we'll have a beer and we'll have a sandwich. And right at seven he'd do the same thing. And you know what the men used to do? If it was finished at eight o'clock, he'd tell them, don't clock out. I'll I'll mark it to nine. He put on an extra hour with his own pen. But he was a good man, Ammon. He was, he, he was a comedy. He was great to listen. He was the whole time talking to himself and giving out and shouting and no one at all around him. <laughs> and, but uh, the, the dread of... I could, one of the things I noticed in the elder, that man and the elder Germans, that the war still weighed heavy on them. That the, it was still... They were, we will say, 
we used the phrase they were constantly looking over their shoulder, which they were. After a short time, Brendan was taken from the mechanical department to start his career as a driver, driving these large articulated trucks, which was to last for the rest of his career. The gearbox department arrived. The man in charge of the gearbox is a man called Ulrich Engel. Ulrich Engel. And uh, when he arrived, I, I walked up to him and I said, I was taken on to work in the gear assembly. Yeah. He said, I was just thrown in here, he said, at the deep end. And it's fantastic who came up and spoke to me. And he said, uh, uh, he said, right, he said, that's that's great, we'll start. So I was, I, that was, I, that was 59, I joined. That was, I'd say, January or so, 1960. And, uh, I was working away and I was doing fantastic and there was four or five of us in the gear assembly department. And this man was another gentleman, another gentleman and had an in-depth knowledge of his trade. And were there unions there? No, but the, the unions were knocking at the door. It was, they hadn't yet come on stage. But uh, anyway, the next thing that happened, the Germans bought in at uh, an articulated truck from Germany, a Mercedes truck with an articulated trailer, and they came in. It was loaded to take a load to Dublin, and believe it or not, something there was some fellow to drive it, but they couldn't. I don't you know he didn't turn up or something, and some fellow said that fell in there at the gearboxes. He's able to drive a truck. So that was me. So the, one of the people came in and he said to me, "Would you drive a truck to Dublin?" I said, what? So I called, I said, and I called my boss, and he said, Brendan, they're asking you to drive it. He said, for one week, you t- take up this load of crane parts to build Liberty Hall. Right. My goodness. Yeah. Right. So, believe it or not, I had never been to Dublin by road. I had been up to two, an All-Ireland final or something by train. And, right, I they sent a German with me, a man called Franz Schultes, and we and they said when you you have to go to Dublin, get there tonight, discharge your load in the morning, come back, and you have to go again with load two, but for one week, right? I done it anywhere, and I arrived in at there at Boatbridge where Liberty Hall is, and this massive crater on the ground away down for this this was going to be Ireland's tallest building I looked in and there was just mud and water and uh, we offloaded the, the crane parts that was the, the first parts of the crane Lord who was to bring the rest of it and uh, right that was I'd done the second trip anyway and they said will you do next week I wound up doing that job for 25 years Klaus Nolke describes the type of crane that they were building in the factory. Now, when I came there, came here to Killarney, uh, the company was building tower cranes, building side cranes, which um, were obviously much easier to ship, and they were sold uh, to... Leaper companies in England or Leaper agents in New Zealand and in America and Canada. 
And uh, because of the uh, construction industry in America, in the U USA, uh, we always tended to build the bigger or the biggest tower cranes within our group and even worldwide, uh, simply for the reason that uh, in America the uh, construction industry was always split up into various operations. Uh, one company was doing the foundation, one was doing the steelworks, one was doing the cladding outside, and so you didn't have this uh, same uh, working habit as in in Germany, France, and and Holland, uh, where one contractor would do the whole thing and would consequently put one big crane or one crane into position, and which was doing most of the work. So we went ahead and. Uh, got involved in special cranes. So we built, uh, for example, a 150-ton overhead crane for the Pigeon House Power Station in Dublin. We uh, started, uh, and my predecessor, uh, Heinz Schiller, he had started building very small, and really very small gantry cranes for the CIE. And... Um, for container handling or yeah, container handling or even just the, the Guinness tank handling and um, so uh, I continued with that and we started uh, building uh, ship-to-shore cranes uh, for Dublin and for Bristol and Limerick and Cork and they were all very 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 small in, in comparison to what's today done. But it was a start of all that. And uh, I must say, because a lot of companies, particularly in Germany, had burned their fingers and made substantial losses in the container handling, which had just started at the time, uh, we were not really allowed to do so. But uh, we did. Yeah. And uh, the old man, as we say, Hans Lieber wasn't totally amused uh, at one stage he passed the factory going to the Hotel Europe and we met in the evening for dinner and he said what's that they're standing in the in the yard I said oh that's only a gantry he said that's a container crane I, I said yeah you, you can handle a container with it as well he said I, there was a container hanging on it so, but that was then okay, you know, so we continued. <laughs> uh, in the 1970s, you, you took charge, you were in control. And being in that position, uh, did you find it difficult to, to pull the, long, the rest along with you, or were you always, uh, were you, did, did you find it difficult? No, I don't think so. It was uh, too difficult. You know, we, we all had one aim and we were all basically responsible to the owner. And uh, so we all had one aim. Uh, surely there were <laughs> differences of opinion on certain issues, 
and uh, what should be done and what shouldn't be done, you know. But uh, I would say overall, it was fine. Oh boy, I mean, when you say differences of opinion, were they, they Are you, could you describe you, We had, for example, one situation that when, when we were really, uh, I would say, really in trouble that we had no work because uh, uh, the American company didn't want to take anything anymore because they were uh, not being financed and uh, uh, we still had cranes under in the yard and so you know it was it was difficult to to deal and at that stage then it was a question of of how do we deal with it how do we uh, lay off people do we do short time work and uh, or can we can we reduce altogether and there were at some stages uh, i even suggested uh, very clearly uh, also to the owner to close the factory because uh, it uh, made no real hard sense. What years were, they, were these? Oh, that uh, seven or thereabouts. Mm. Um, and then there was another occasion maybe in, in 85 or 86. I can't remember exactly the, the, the dates. And uh, it, it was extremely difficult to, uh, to trade at the time. And our cost had uh, gone uh, very high. The wages had been always, I think, always very good and are still very good. Um, and uh, the productivity was not always uh, that good. Uh, and and particularly, that? particularly when, when we had little work, uh, then people were inclined to string it down uh, and rather than just getting on with the job. And so that made uh, problems. Yeah. And in the 1970s, Klaus describes here the difficulties he encountered with the industrial unions. Uh, what, what size workforce were there at that time? You see, when I came, we had about... Uh, 400 people, there about 380-400. When we built in 1972, we built what we call called at the time and still now the new hall. Uh, we had 520, which partly were involved in the construction of the building, and. Uh, so it was, let's say, in the early 70s, uh, 450 was a reasonable figure. And we, at, certain, at some stage we went down to 250, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, was difficult. And unfortunately, uh, there were, was a tendency in Ireland about redundancy payments. And um, uh, these redundancy payments, which were regulated by the state to a certain extent, uh, however, the unions never agreed to those uh, uh, three weeks or uh, sorry, one week and one week and a half or something like that, depending on the age and all that. Um, but uh, there were companies who 
gave up to five and six weeks and eight weeks. And when you look at that, many of those companies were in Ireland only for a relatively short time, mm. and therefore the the service years were not very big. Whereas we had at some stage we had an average years of service twenty seven, twenty eight years. So if you imagine uh, six weeks of uh, twenty eight uh, for twenty eight years then, you know, it so comes to a sizable... Yes, a uh, sum of money, but it also probably uh, uh, brought, you know, brought its problems as well. Yeah, um, it brought the problems because you sometimes had older people who were just before retirement uh, try to get this redundancy payment, uh, which would have brought them mm. well into the retirement or at least shortly before or would have allowed them to, to start their own business, and quite a number of people have done that. Uh, so uh, <laughs> there is not an easy solution to it. Yeah. Well, tell me, talk to me through the, through the materials. In order to make these crates, uh, the, the shipping out of Phoenix, uh, the, the complication of 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 road, I suppose, and getting the uh, the finished product down to Phoenix, or I mean, the logistics of that must have. Been. Yeah. Now you see, this is what a lot of people uh, still today uh, can't comprehend. Why, in the name of God, would somebody put a, a container crane factory into Killarney that far away from the? from Phoenix or from the sea or from port. And why didn't he build the factory closer to Phoenix? Uh, the port of Phoenix? You know, at the time when we started in 1958, when the company was started, the first crane which was built in Killarney was a small, uh, very small crane, a building site crane, which weighed only six and a half tons and costed 1,928 pounds, 10 shillings and sixpence, which is a real official figure and, um, and documented. Uh, but it was a small Mickey Mouse crane. And when I came, we were handling mainly uh, larger tower sections and or sections of tower cranes which were usually at the most 10 meter long and were only weighing maybe 3, 4, 5 tons and, and then you had a few sections uh, which were much smaller in size but heavier in weight they might go up to 10 tons and consequently the factory was laid out for that however when we started building container cranes, then it became a real issue. Is it because the building started to increase that you know that y your business started to to no, increase and you started building? You see, the container the containerization mm -hmm. started to develop. Containerization is only there since uh, nineteen sixty four. You know, and it really took off only in the 70s, in the mid 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Uh, were you leading the field in this area? Uh, no, we were we were uh, dealing with what we call the feeder service. Feeder service meaning uh, that there were big ports like like Hamburg and Rotterdam and Southampton and Felixstuhl wasn't there at the time, I think. Uh, and uh, to those big ports, which then shipped on to the Far East and to America and so, where the bigger vessels uh, went, uh, the containers had to be brought there. And uh, so we were dealing with the smaller ports, uh, with um, smaller vessels. They sometimes they took only uh, 80 or, or so containers. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we were dealing with those. And in that particular field, yes, we were world leaders and uh, or became world leaders by the during the 70s and up to the early 80s. Uh, and those, the design of those cranes uh, had completely different uh, requirements than the big cranes. And uh, they were usually put into smaller ports where there was no money, where the infrastructure wasn't there, where the port uh, key walls and so were not taking any big loads, etc., so um, we had to cater for those things. He recalls what the pier in Phoenix was like and all the obstacles that they came up against. And finally, having to lease the problem out to another company. In, in, I mean, in Phoenix, there was nothing. <laughs> there was just a, you know, a key wall and there was also a shed, uh, which, however, was, you know, so how did you manage? Did did you did you develop it and and, and yeah, or put it in a way that you, you know no we had in, in Phoenix we had uh, initially we had to uh, operate uh, with mobile cranes and uh, then at one stage uh, we we put under great pain a, a sort of a gantry crane in there and and I think nobody really knew what the key wall would would take. And uh, so this crane was then later on taken down and it was not really uh, a, a real proper solution to the problem. And uh, today's loads wouldn't, wouldn't be taken anyway. So you had, um, you had various parameters. We then met a company... Um, which uh, was really picking up containerization uh, as a leasing company. Yeah. And they tried to buy containers and lease the containers to companies. And they also wanted to expand uh, to have cranes and ships to lease out. Yes. And uh, these guys... Uh, they had this. Uh, they had to look after the feeder service as well, to feed the bigger ports, and uh, so from that we uh, uh, we got very much involved with them, and um, we built uh, in total about uh, fourteen cranes for them at the time, and uh, uh, that was really, you know was helping us 
to market the cranes and also to uh, show that they were working and we had to do a lot of development work there and trying and trial and errors and and all sorts of uh, problems we had. Fintan Ford joined Lieber in the 1970s. I was first I set up the the um, the spare parts department, the transport department, and then I went up into the sales department and I became a salesman. <laughs> While he was head of the transport department, he talks here about getting the built cranes from Killarney, the 50 kilometres, to Fenet, going through the town of Tralee on the way. After spare parts, I became transport manager. So it was my job to ship the cranes from here to Australia or wherever. Okay. And I had to bring them to Phoenix and I had to load them on the ships of Phoenix. Well, they first of all, we had to get we had to get police guard escorts to bring the crane parts over because they were either too long or too wide. That meant that all the traffic had to be diverted off the roads while the leaper cranes were coming. Even though we might have left early in the morning, you still encounter those people coming to work or going from work and uh, the roads were very bad and the telephone wires were always so low uh, that uh, if you weren't careful uh, <laughs> the local people were without a telephone uh, f- for maybe a week or two weeks and we weren't very popular in some quarters but the telephone, the electricity wires were altogether a more dangerous aspect of it. And uh, we had to get the electricity supply, ESP to heighten the wires in some cases. Um, there was one particular case over in Tralee. Uh, you had the Kelleher mills that were crossing the road with a, a, a viaduct there near the bus station now. And uh, the crane parts were be coming over, and that was the way to Phoenix. Had to go up by Balunuk, now out the Ardfert Road. And uh, in some cases, we would have to let the air out of the tyres <laughs> to get the piece under the bridge. And that would mean new tyres, because the uh, tyres would be absolutely destroyed. And uh, But the tyres, in relation to the price of the product, uh, had to be done. Had to be done. <laughs> so walls were walls were broken, and I remember one particular case where um, there were very bad bends going into Phoenix Village, and um, we had to uh, organise with the locals to lower the walls in some cases so that the crane part would go over the wall. In other cases, the walls would have to be taken down altogether. But the village people in Phoenix were very cooperative. But they would needed to be paid. It had to be paid for all the inconvenience. Uh, but eventually, all that um, sorted itself with a lot of aggro and hassle. And, yeah. and, then, and then actually getting the, the parts onto, sh- onto ships on, on a... What was not a wonderful, not a great pier at the time? The, the pier was impossible at the time because all they had was um, a, a small, two small uh, steam cranes which were operated 
by coal and um, they used to operate those cranes bringing in coal and timber and animal feeding stuffs and stuff like that for the merchants of Tralee. The great thing about Lieber was that it was going to give business to Fenet. Michael Latchford was one of the merchants in the town of Tralee in the 1970s. All I ever heard my uncle and the Kellers and Morris uh, talking about was that's great, um, it'll keep Phoenix going. Yeah. My uncle would have been in the Harbour Board for many years, Douglas, and I was in it for many years. So we were, the merchants would have always been in the Harbour Board because they needed a port. And uh, the, the merchants, um, everybody knew they owned the port, they controlled the port. So it was uh, another... Uh, <laughs> job to, had to be done to convince them that other people wanted to use the port as well and uh, there was a lot of um, coming and going and meetings and so on but eventually I became uh, the chairman of the harbour board eventually and um, a lot of things were sorted out then Before Hans Lieber died in 1993 mm. how uh, did the what did you see in him? Did he really like this country? I know he accidentally found Killarney, if you oh, like. I know, I mean, he, was he, he, had an, he, had a, he, he had some sort of an affiliation or love for the country, which is hard to describe. But maybe the short story that uh, on the weekend before he died... He specially flew over, or was flown over by his children uh, in, in two aircrafts. And uh, they came over, and uh, he stayed from Saturday lunchtime until Sunday lunchtime, then they flew back, and on Wednesday he died. He knew that he would die at the time, but he wanted to come back to Kilani. Well, we've come to the end of this week's podcast, the story of Lieber Crane Factory in Killarney. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you would like to access any of the full-length interviews, they're available on our website. That's www.irishlifeandlore.com. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.